You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. start with a quick recapping of the issues. How did we get here? We know that if we were to go back in time around the early 2000s, 2005, many African countries were benefiting from HIPIC debt forgiveness, the multilateral debt relief initiative, and there's no There's no question about it. Those initiatives really did place Africa on the investor map. What we were seeing at the time was perhaps an increasing commoditization of established emerging markets. For many private sector investors, Africa looked very exciting at that point in time. African economies were benefiting from the rise of China, China's demand for commodities. There's a lot of focus on what was changing in Africa. Africa, the rise of the middle class, all of the good growth momentum, urbanization, demographics, productivity gains, adoption of new technologies, a deepening of financial intermediation, all of these favorable factors driving Africa's growth trajectory. If we think back to the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, if we look at the response in developed markets with the onset of quantitative easing, QE1, QE2, QE3, the balance sheet expansion of major central banks, we know that this was a time when Africa's external debt issuance started to become much more important. The conditions were in place. Once again, it was a case of the global environment driving the reaction in Africa and what was possible within African economies. At the time, there's little question I think with hindsight, that even then, with governments putting in place counter-cyclical fiscal policy, the ability to borrow cheaply in international markets really did help with the maintaining of positive growth trajectories. We might have seen perhaps worse fallout following the global financial crisis had that not been the case. We shouldn't forget some of those initial positives. But we also know, as we continued to see more borrowing by African sovereigns, that some concerns started to creep in. In particular, there was this issue of this concentration of debt maturities. If you were to fast forward 10 years on from QE3, suddenly you had that initial issuance that had been seen, the 10-year issuance mostly, a lot of maturities coming about. And the question at the back of the minds of many investors was always, what would happen if we were tested by a significant tightening of global financial conditions? What would happen with the idea that African sovereigns should be able to refinance this debt relatively easily? That's what you do if you issue in external markets. You borrow. The hope is that the market discipline works. You obtain a rating Um, from the credit rating agencies. You want to prove to your creditors that you are perhaps safeguarding your own future, that you're putting in place reforms, that your credit worthiness is improving over over time. And the theory goes that you should then be able to access financing on more favorable terms. Now, 
we know that something has gone wrong with that. Because if we look at the recent past, if we look at credit rating trends for a lot of African economies, those credit rating downgrades have been much more prevalent than the credit rating upgrades. And the question we need to ask is, was this just a feature of the global macro economy? There was a severe commodity price correction. Think back to what happened to oil prices at the end of 2014. Many African economies feeling the lagged effect of that commodity correction. Or was it a comment on the fact that we just didn't see enough reform? That actually the discipline of the markets didn't really work the way everyone had supposed that it might work? There has been an issue, and the override, part of the overriding issue that everyone is grappling with is this way that African countries, like a lot of developing economies everywhere, are locked into the global cycle. What becomes possible with growth? What becomes possible with spending? How do global factors constrain that? So maybe then the solution is a diversity of creditors. Maybe when you have a multiplicity of creditors, when it's not just the leveraged hedge funds or some of the real money funds, all driven by the same influences that are investing in Africa, should that create the solution? Should that create the likelihood that we'll see more stable growth through these global cycles? Maybe. But there has been a problem. And we look to a situation today where suddenly there's a lot more focus on a, rev on a credit metric that didn't really seem to matter that much to investors at the outset. And that is the ability of the different countries to be able to meet their debt obligations, their ability to repay some of that debt comfortably, or even to refinance the debt. What would help confidence? If we have seen, alongside the borrowing, a significant rise in revenue, something that creates more confidence that this isn't going to grow, grow into a bigger problem, this isn't going to blow up into a much bigger issue. And this is where we do need to take a step back to assess where we are. Now, I think there is a need for balance. Part of the reason why perhaps the debate is so polarized is that often that space for civil society to address these issues in an independent way, in a relatively neutral way, in a way with understanding of what's driving the different actors, that space has been very much constrained. We know that many African countries especially what we tend to think of as the frontier economies, those economies that have been open to investment, that have seen a rise in portfolio investment, that they have taken on more debt in the recent past. The ability to manage that debt, what it takes for any borrower to be able to refinance comfortably, even the act of issuing new debt to refinance maturing debt, the lengthening of maturities, sometimes it's not always clear from what civil society has been saying, the way these issues have been discussed in the media, that this is properly understood by all actors. 
It is actually a healthy thing once a country has established its ability to borrow to be able to refinance that debt. This would be normal. This is standard practice. But if you look at how polarized the issues around debt sustainability or perceived debt sustainability have been, this isn't always understood by all actors. And unfortunately, this leads to a great amount of defensiveness on the part of some governments. Every time the issue of external debt is raised in the local media, there's a sense of, oh no, they're attacking us for having borrowed. They're attacking us for having borrowed to invest in that infrastructure. It's something that's driven by an opposition agenda. That space for a meaningful dialogue just isn't there. And that, unfortunately, is part of the problem. And then I will say, as we look to where we are at this point in time, a tightening of monetary conditions in the US certainly, greater pressures in terms of how people are perceiving Africa's debt sustainability, not yet anything like a meaningful tightening of financial conditions. We haven't got there yet. But where do we stand? Actually, it's not so much the Eurobond debt that we should be worrying about. For the most part, that borrowing is known about. The terms of the borrowing are understood. When the repayments are due is generally understood. The issue in the recent past has been much more about the debt that we simply don't know about. This has a big issue on debt sustainability too. One might argue that as much as we haven't really seen market discipline being a big driver of the actions in this space, we haven't really seen that improved credit worthiness just because more African sovereigns have been able to borrow from international capital markets. Nonetheless, it would be wrong to dismiss entirely the positive benefits of that market access. One clear benefit has been that many more investors, a far greater pool of investors, have done their homework on individual countries, and usually that external debt issuance is the precursor to greater involvement of that pool of capital in domestic debt markets. Now, there are some countries, take Kenya, for example, where there had been a sizable, active, relatively deep domestic debt market anyway, made up of domestic institutional investors. And there are other countries, maybe Ghana falls into that bucket, where the liquidity of the domestic market has really been enhanced by foreign investor involvement in that market. It would be wrong to ignore this important benefit that the Eurobond issuance does bring. But let's go back to this point about the debt that we don't know about, the lack of proper disclosure. We can't ignore the fact that in the countries where this has come up recently, there's been an issue of, well, how sustainable is the debt burden? What does the repayment profile actually look like? I will use the illustration of Zambia. I was there just last week. For a long time, investors' big concern about Zambia was that there was this concentration of Eurobond debt maturities happening in very quick succession from 2022. 
The clear message from the authorities recently is actually the elevated debt repayment profile comes before that. It comes from 2019 on. It's 2019, 2020, 2021. So at a time when we didn't even know we should be worried, it turns out that relative to the foreign exchange reserves of that country, there are sizable debt repayments to be made. And this goes back to the key issue of transparency. What led to those borrowing commitments? We know that there has been another player that's been very active in sub-Saharan Africa. We know that we had seen a great deal more Chinese lending, allowing for infrastructure to be built, and there have been perceived positives as a result of this. One is, it's never a bad thing to have a diverse investor base, providing that the influences on that investor base are in fact diverse. If you see investors pulling back at, in one instance, if you've got that diversity, the hope is that you can be more resilient. China has been viewed positively within the region because its interests have seen, been seen to be much more long-term. Many African governments have spoken about the attractiveness of borrowing from Chinese institutions with the promise of long-term financing that may not be available on market terms elsewhere, but also this idea that there might be an initial grace period before the repayments fall due. But we have also become accustomed to the fact that often in these lending agreements, there is the idea that borrowing countries have to come up with 15% of the counterpart financing themselves just to be able to unlock that lending from China or Chinese institutions. And if that's the case, it really does call into question whether there's any meaningful grace period at all. So this is an issue that African governments are still grappling with do they understand the terms of the borrowing commitments that they're entering into? Is there proper disclosure of when the repayments are going to be falling due? And what about that key issue of affordability? If there is an issue that perhaps creditors on all sides could be criticized for, it's the lack of attention paid to this key issue of the ability to repay the debt. We know that obtaining credit is not in itself a bad thing. This is what allows for the enhancing of the productive potential of economies. Being able to access credit allows countries to do much more with the resources that they currently have. That is not a bad thing. The issue is when that borrowing becomes an unsustainable debt burden. And part of the criticism has to be leveled at creditors for not paying sufficient attention the whole way through to the repayment ability. When we made an assumption about African sovereigns being able to borrow big, the idea was that these countries would have very healthy GDP profiles. And it's not difficult to understand the long-term drivers of African growth that largely do remain in place. This is a region where you would expect GDP to be rising. But we also know that there has been this big disconnect between GDP and the ability to actually generate the revenue that repays the debt. This has been a big issue. More recently, we see it in terms of the credit metrics that are favored by investors. Not so long ago, debt to GDP was very important. 
Now, almost everyone is looking at debt service to the revenue that a government is able to collect. More importantly, when it comes to the external debt, is this idea of not just being able to collect the revenue, but are you collecting the revenue in the right currency? What are the risks associated with that? It's probably too early to call how all of this is going to develop. I do take issue with some of the statistics that are often put out there. Up to 40% of sub-Saharan African borrowers are at risk of debt distress. Well, the problem with that is a lot of what we're looking at in that statistic tends to be the low-income countries with very poor institutions. Countries like South Sudan, Chad, Central African Republic. These are never or have never been the big euro bond issuers, which is not to say that the big euro bond issuers will not run into trouble. But I think once again, we should be careful not to make sweeping assumptions about the whole region. There is great diversity in terms of debt management capacity in different economies. And there are African economies that fully recognize some of the challenges that are going to be taking steps to meaningfully raise the revenue that they are able to collect. There are African economies for whom markets remain open, who will be able to refinance comfortably. And it would be wrong, very wrong, to put all of these economies in the same bucket. Even so, we do know that there is a need for caution. Market pricing is telling us that there is a need for caution. We also know that it's not so much the debt that we know about that is the problem, it's the debt that perhaps we haven't been fully aware of. It's the debt that perhaps hasn't even been fully disclosed in some instances. And this is where there is a need for more responsible practices from all creditors across the board. This can only really ever be driven by the borrowing entity itself. Those entities that do engage in better disclosure, there's always an asymmetry involved and we'll never know whether there's perfect disclosure. But where markets think that they are seeing absolutely everything, those borrowing entities should be able to benefit from more favorable pricing from reduced risk premia. We also need to pay much more attention to this idea of repayment streams. So there are some debt initiatives that we can think about. There are more countries and looking to tap into a new investor base are looking at the idea of a sukuk. You create an asset that will generate a revenue. That revenue is expected to repay the debt. Actually, that's not bad discipline at all for debt practices generally. Maybe there's a lot more that can be done with that. As we see a tightening of global financial conditions, it's very likely that investors are going to be looking very carefully at these considerations. As we see this tightening of global financial conditions, maybe something will eventually come of this idea of market discipline. Maybe the markets will finally play the role that they're supposed to be playing in differentiating between better credits and less good credits. Maybe with this idea of tightening globally, we will see more attention being paid to this idea of repayment capacity. The danger is if all of this has been allowed to run for so long that by that time it is too late. And this is where we all have the responsibility to call for more transparency, 
more disclosure for perhaps that diversification of funding sources, it becomes all important. Africa has made a great deal of progress since the days when we were seeing many economies that were highly indebted. Market access has been made possible. This should be seen a good thing. It is too early in the emergence of sub-Saharan African economies to say, well, because mistakes were made in one or two economies, we're calling the end of that. If I were to take a guess, I would think that isn't going to happen. Africa is going to be playing a much more important role on a global scale. But in order to do so, we do need to deal with these upcoming issues in a much more transparent way. Hopefully, the next few months will bring more positive developments. Hopefully, policymakers will be much more focused on how it is that they reassure investors, what it is that they do to raise revenue, and civil society will find the place to demand greater disclosure and greater, dis and greater transparency when it comes to borrowing practices. So I've kept you here some time. I'm sure everyone is very eager to get back to the, the drink session and the networking. Let me just end by saying I remain optimistic. We know that this is going to be an issue. We recognize the scale of the problem, but it's actually in the interests of all the creditors, as well as all the borrowing entities, to ensure that we can move to a position of greater progress. And I'm optimistic that Perhaps these problems are not insurmountable with the right approach. I'm sure you have all of tomorrow to decide exactly what that correct approach should be. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.